This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele over in New York. It has been quite the day. It's been quite the week, but it's certainly been quite the day, Alex. We have a lot to talk about this evening. US stocks are all over the place today. So many factors to price into the market. You've got the China reopening story, which certainly had a huge impact on Europe. European stocks surging higher, commodity stocks in particular doing well, as we saw metals getting a lift off China reopening stories. Uh, Then you've got the payrolls number, which I don't think changed very much. But nevertheless, at one point today, we had the uh, the, the, the Fed uh, rates being priced towards 5.25% at the terminal rate. That's a huge mm-hmm. kind of shift in terms of sentiment. Susan Collins out of Boston, the Boston Fed, kind of pointing us in that direction as well. It's been kind of really one of those days uh, that I think a number of different factors have come together. Hard to kind of tease apart exactly why the market's moving and on what. But all these factors, I think, are worthy of discussion. Yep. A couple things. Also, um, Cameron Christ, it was to me my favorite when he said that the jobs number had someone for something for everyone. You can make it fit whatever narrative you wanted it to fit. And you could really see that reflected uh, in asset prices. We also saw uh, China, more rumors that potentially it's reopening. And you had Chinese equities got a huge boost. Um, yep. Also, I've been getting some notes and IBs from some traders who are like, look, when you take a look at the bond market, it's not necessarily where you get to, it's how fast you do it. So maybe it is about how you journey there. And if we're not going to go as fast, and this job data shows you might not have to go as fast, maybe that's why you're seeing a bid coming to the front end of the bond market. But I think the point is, we just don't know. No, and I think also it's Friday, and I think you've got to factor that in. But but it's interesting, just the kind of the round robin that we've seen U.S. stocks on in particular. Um, the S&P is now basically flat on the day. It moved higher first thing this morning. We've seen a big fade. It went negative for a bit. It's come back up into positive territory. It's been a real journey. Stocks like Freeport Magnaran have done very well in the in the commodity space. Um, tech stocks continue to be a focus. Uh, but the yield story, I think, is sitting over all of this. And I also can't work out whether China is a positive for inflation or a negative for inflation. It might lift if it reopens commodity prices, but it could ease the supply chain mm-hmm. story. So it's a re- I think it's a really difficult narrative to work your way through. Yep. And then the idea that how much pain is the U.S. economy going to have to take? At the end of yep. the day, that's what we're going to all have to look towards, no matter what central bank uh, you're talking about. So so to this point, um, John Farrell sat down with uh, U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, and this was after the numbers, they were the first, and they talked about those numbers and what it winds up also meaning for the Fed. I'm not an economist, number one, uh, and I think that it has to be very clear. And, and number two, when you think about where we are at this moment in time, uh, what, what I'm going to do as my job as Secretary of Labor is wherever I can is to make sure that Americans have opportunities to get to good-paying jobs, whether it's to workforce development, apprentice programs, working with states and cities all across America. That's my role and responsibility right now. Marty Walsh, the Labor Secretary, talking to John Farrow a little bit earlier on, talking to us now is Bloomberg's John Authors. Uh, senior editor for markets here at Bloomberg. John, so much to bring together today. What has really caught your eye? We've got the China narrative kind of really moving things around early on. You've got the payrolls number to factor in. You've got the kind of Fed overlay with a lot of speakers uh, out on the tape this afternoon. What have you taken away from today? Uh, 
I, I guess the thing that most still most surprises me is that is that uh, both the stock market and the bond market were as relatively calm as they were after the unemployment numbers, um, because um, yeah, you can argue about the different elements of the of the, the survey that pointed in different directions, mm-hmm. but the uh, the earnings number was up and higher than expected, and the uh, payroll was growing somewhat more than expected. That That's just not the direction it should be going in. It probably does explain uh, a little of why Powell felt confident, Jake Powell felt confident to be so hawkish earlier this week. So, so I have something to, 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 to that point, that, John. That the market was yes. To that point, I have something like sacrilegious mm. to say. Does that mean that we mm. can't read that much into the market reaction to the jobs number? Well, personally, um, yeah, NFP Fridays can be extremely messy. The fact that they happen on a Friday with people trying to square their accounts by the end of the day just makes makes it uh, all the more all the more complicated. Uh, I would be very interested to see where we close. Whether there were you know whether there have been trial balloons being floated. If we end up with stocks down for the day and bond yields up a bit, which was what I automatically expected when I saw the uh, the non-farm payroll numbers, then that will probably show that, that you know that this is another example of the very great amount of hope that resides still in the yeah. system, which is why we still don't have catharsis. And I think you can probably say much the same about uh, about China. I just, I cannot find any reputable any reputable news source actually giving good, solid balance, ballast to the uh, to the notion that, that reopening is coming any earlier than people thought it was. But, but did, is that why we got, but, but, but the market has latched onto, onto this very, very quickly, John. Yes. I, European yes, exactly. stocks in particular really flew out of the gate on this one. Names like LVMH, Rio Tinto, Anglo-American, all doing very, yes. very well on the back of this. And that had an influence into the United States. Did the China effect undermine the normal, the kind of, the, the more rational reaction to the payroll number? Yes, I think it probably did. Um, I also think that the way, whatever happens as, when it deals with its reopening after COVID, the China trade isn't going to be the same as it always used to be in future. Um, so, you know, nothing against Rio Tinto and uh, mining companies, but I don't think you can naturally assume that uh, more economic activity in China equals higher copper price. Right. You know, greater demand for copper, and um, you know that the, the, uh, you know, whatever one else else one thinks about Xi Jinping, he plainly is trying to move the economy in a different direction towards you know a more consumer domestically focused uh, economy, and he is trying to uh, get away from a model which uh, you know the current rulers of China, the current administrators obviously recognize us too dependent on on credit. So, so yeah, the China's important, but its importance is going to vary. Its effects are going to vary. So then to that point, mm. what did we learn about how investors responded to these rumors that literally are rumors, to your point, like we can find no yeah. substantive point. What do we learn about investor psychology or positioning or sentiment or what? I think they're just desperate for some good news uh, and desperate for an excuse to buy. The fact that there is still that amount 
of residual demand out there that 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 the the uh, people who are looking for a way in does suggest that we're probably not at the bottom yet um to me which is the glass half empty way of uh, of looking at this um particularly in the case of china it probably is some indication however that sentiment has got seriously bombed out um just every reason you can think of to sell China has come up in the last year or so. It probably is oversold. The fact the fact that it's able twice this week rallied on you know, very very big time on really quite diaphanous rumours. So that certainly does suggest that it's uh, that it's oversold. That if if somebody does want to try going in and doing a Benjamin Graham job looking for value in China, this is probably quite a good time to do it. The other thing, and I hear what you're saying about copper. Mm. You look at what's happening with the housing market in China. It's going to be kind of difficult to to see a a good story emerging there anytime soon. Yeah. But what I'm also yeah. trying to understand from China is how should we think about it from an inflationary point of view? Were it to reopen, and I appear we could be, I appreciate we could be a long way away from that. On the one hand, John, you could see supply chains easing and, yeah. and demand picking up a little bit, and and you could also see a big pickup in energy price, in in energy demand in particular, yes. less so maybe for the metals, but certainly for energy. And mm. I'm wondering how we should think about it. Is China reopening a good thing for Western markets because it will it will ease supply chains? Or is it a bad thing because it potentially could have a significantly inflationary impact and therefore ultimately terminal rates, which got priced at, what, 5.25 mm. today, could be much higher than that? Interesting question. Uh, certainly it's true. One of the critical points that's often overlooked is that China has been a thoroughly deflationary force for the rest of the world for a generation, and it isn't anymore. Um, if anything, it's uh, exporting inflation. Uh, I still think that um, the world wants a buyer of last resort. It, the uh, you know, various economies in the eurozone like germany in particular are far more dependent on china than they wish than they than they wish they were uh hence the uh, chancellor has taken some political flack to to go and be nice to xi jinping this week um there, there are quite a number of countries where the boost to export demand uh and the easing of supply chains all of that issue is already easing but the, the presumably the considerable uh easing of supply chains, that it's probably a net positive. But you're quite right. There, there are so many um, there are so many different avenues through the you know or channels through which this uh, this will move. It's very it is very difficult to work out. So now what? And mm. I don't mean that to be a glib question, but we're looking at mm. an S P that's now flat and, and you're very it's very possible that we could end lower today for sure. We got midterms yeah. coming up, but let's just look through that for a second. What are we supposed mm-hmm. to be looking at? Like, if the jobs data didn't provide real clarity, if yeah. the China trade may or may not have more legs, we just don't know. How am I supposed to trade right now? Well, you could just sort of try to work out which assets were too cheap relative to their fundamental value and buy those, I, I suppose, <laughs> um, which is rather hard work. Um I think I think inflation is still the key thing. The um, the course of the Fed 
Uh, One thing I've enjoyed from the Bank of England and the Fed this week is the degree of intellectual honesty in the press conferences was was glorious. If you think back to, you know, um, Alan Greenspan talking like the Delphic Oracle, you know, reading the runes of of all these conditional statements. And um, Powell and, uh, and Andrew Bailey were really very direct about what they saw as their issues. Powell says, you've got interest rates wrong, they should be higher. And in the bank in England, they said, you've got interest rates wrong, they should be lower, um, which is very unusual for them to be that direct. And it's you know, both geopolitics and the imponderables of exactly how yep. um, the pandemic works its way, you know, the pig in the python works its way through the economy in terms of inflation and unemployment is critical to both. So although it's not very imaginative, original to say this, next week's CPI will matter an awful, awful lot. Uh, if it finally does begin to show serious easing, then that makes it sensible to be much more confident that the Fed is, uh, the Fed is going to be uh, uh, stepping down. But, but I, ultimately, I think that it, so much is dependent on um, on uh, that central yep. macro call, and that's really all you've got to trade on, which is very difficult. The great quote from Alan Greenspan, I know you think you understood <laughs> or understand what you thought I said, but I'm not sure you realise that what you heard <laughs> is not what I meant. Which I totally <laughs> got that, you guys. I'm all in. It, is, it was just brilliant. Those are the days when we used to try and work out what the Fed was going to do by the thickness of Alan Greenspan's briefcase. Um, halcyon days. Um, John, just come to, to come to the Bank of England, though, I thought the Bank of England was quite confusing in its message this week. It, it's, it is not good at communication. It signaled that we were going to get a very big inf- recession if rates went to where the market was pricing them. And it basically then said, but we're not going to take rates to there. But the the national press went with the idea that we were going to see this very bad recession, but that was that was conditional on rates going much higher than the Bank of England said that it intended to send them. Then there was this other kind of thing: we're raising seventy five basis points, but we expect mortgage rates to come down. I, I as a, as a British consumer, mm. I was left a little lost by what the Bank of England was up to, and it it did actually, funny enough, remind me in some ways of Greenspan. <laughs> I, I I think that's um. I mean, the Bank of England's had a number of really serious communication snafus in the last year. Um, if you remember last year, there was the, the time we were more or less promised a rate hike and it didn't happen. And then yeah. the next month, it did. Um, um, so, yeah, yes, they plainly do have a communication issue. And um, the uh, the trust experience hasn't yeah. helped any anybody. But uh, I'm mean, I, I mean, I really I... clear about what they're saying. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad you are. John, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Bluebirds John Authors. Uh, up next, we're going to continue sort of analysing what is happening here. We need to talk about payrolls and we need to talk about midterms. More detail to follow. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listen to Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in the UK. Let's continue the Ch- China theme. Uh, at this time. Let me read you through some commodity movements here. We got Brent up 4%. 
WTI up 4.5%. LME Copper up 7%. We haven't seen that kind of rally uh, since 2020. Aluminum is up 4%. I could just keep going, but you're getting the theme here? Like, if we see a China reopening, there is a huge amount of money pouring into the commodity space. Is it real? Is that a real pouring of money into the commodity space? Well, joining us now is Joe Doe. He covers commodities uh, for Bloomberg. Um, he, Oh, no, you changed tight. You're a deputy team leader. This feels uh, yeah, big. Yeah. So yeah. I, I've also known Joe for like 15 years, by the way. We was the second company right. we worked together with. So like, you know, deputy team leader is huge. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, okay. Money pouring into commodities because of China. Is that a real trade? It seems that it's the trade today, right? I mean, this idea that uh, zero COVID policy might eventually go away in China suggests to metals buyers and sellers that, okay, great, China's back on the board, right? I mean, China is 50% of global consumption of all metals, steel, aluminum, copper, you name it, that's what it is. And they're 50% of production of things like steel and aluminum. Um there's there's a couple ways to look at this. You're saying right? it the way we feel, right? Which is sure, you can make that bet, but a lot of the discussion before the zero COVID policy was that China was effectively slowing growth in areas like construction, right? So heavy industry was something that Xi Jinping and uh, the entire PRC were saying we're we're no longer just a maker of things and stuff. We're going to start going into a services. Uh, industry. And so a while ago, this was going through the halls of steel and aluminum and copper and all the, you know, all the metals. So I guess today, you know, if if you've been betting that China just isn't on the board um, and suddenly they could be, yeah, you'll probably see a pop in prices. But yeah, the question you're getting at, how long term do we see this being? Do we suddenly yep. see a, a super cycle in aluminum prices? I'm not so sure that traders that I talk to in the physical market really believe that to be the case. So the other angle on this as well is that um, the Chinese housing market is getting crushed. Yeah, And it, it is a huge consumer of copper and aluminum, aluminum, um, and we're kind of assuming that it, as you say, it kind of goes back to where it was. But, but if I take a look at what's happening in Chinese credit, it's basically saying that, that the housing market is going to take years to recover. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, this is, as you know, Guy, when we write these kind of market stories, we, we have to typically say why, you know, uh, yeah. Iron and steel are down 50% this year, or why copper is down this year, right? And the main driver that we keep noting is, yes, the zero COVID policy. But the other thing we say is general demand in China is down. So even if you took away the zero COVID policy, I mean, you're talking about a country that, what, is is GDP is reporting at 3 3.5%. Three mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, guys... We were looking at eight to ten percent numbers for the past twenty years. I mean, like numbers that we constantly said, "This is crazy. This is crazy." But now we're starting to see these three to three and a half percent that look like Western, you know, economies, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. so I, I think that is a great point that you're making. Is nobody is is dead set on thinking suddenly that they reopen and the housing industry just comes back or construction comes back? I mean, Caterpillar is a machinery producer. They're still getting asked about China because. Well, what's the machine numbers like there, right? I mean, that that tells you the story as well. So it, it just goes beyond all of this. It, it's just a broader economy in general. So, Joe, when you're going through the 2023 outlooks from companies and analysts, what metal are they most bullish on? Because there's so many yeah. things that should make sense. Like yeah. if you want to build a lot of wind turbines, we need the stuff that goes into wind turbines. Like we should have a lot of we need a lot of copper. But I'm actually wondering if that's true of a short term. 
Yeah, the short. Yeah, that's a it's it's a really good point. If you do ask these guys short term, they generally say, "Oh, it's it's a really tough." Long term, they all say copper, right? Copper is the answer because of the energy transition. Yada yada yada. Copper is the term. It's, it's a really hard thing to pick out, particularly if you have supply that comes back from China. Absolutely. I mean, the the conversations that I've had over the past two months, sitting down with physical traders, with physical buyers, producers, is what are your contract negotiations like for 2023? And most of them have said something to the effect of, people are asking us to hold off delivery of the beginning of annual contracts until February. Hmm. And some are saying they won't begin making annual contract deals until March or April. So wow. those are the type of things that tell you, wow, the demand's just not there right now, right? And, and compared to last year when we were going gangbusters, people were booking deals in August. Okay, August uh, before the next year started. Now we're talking like April as the year has already begun that people won't start taking monthly delivery of contracts. So I think that tells you short term, yeah, this is a tough market. Europe is in trouble. The energy crisis is real. It is it's very much in the face of everyone living there and you talk to anybody in those markets, they're just not they're just not ready to say, yeah, we're going to put money up front and say let's take this material. And of course, you know, the US is sitting and waiting too. They don't have the same type of energy crisis, but demand yeah. generally people are worried, right? The Fed is still raising rates. Sure, labor numbers look good, but like real economy, uh, I have not had a conversation with anybody who just looked at me in the face and said, "Things are the best we've ever seen them." <laughs> um do we know how much China is buying from Russia on the metals front? We, it's not very clear, Guy. And there was this assumption in the market that as Russia gets you know, uh, self-sanctioned out of every private buyer, that they would just start selling it into China. The, the visibility, obviously, is always difficult you know, because it's not like those numbers just get published somewhere. There is a belief that, yes, uh, China is probably going to take a little bit of aluminum here and there, but the the problem is China, you know, fifty five percent of global steel production is by China, right? So it's not like they're necessarily eager to just take metal off someone else's hands. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get into the real weeds, the worry is that China says, "Sure, we'll we'll take aluminum, say, at a discount, and then we'll remelt it into value added products and ship those to all over the rest of the world, and mm-hmm. we'll we'll, make, we'll turn a profit." You know, turning primary into to, to some sort of value added. Uh, listen, that that's speculation. I, I can't sit here and say that that's something that's happening on a grand scale. But it is. These are the conversations happening in the market right now. That is also the conversation when it comes to oil and that too. You buy Russian oil on the cheap, you turn around for product. Your refiners make a nice margin. Is it actually happening? I don't know. We just don't know. Um, Joe. It's the best. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Joe Doe uh, joining us from Bloomberg News. All right, coming up, we're going to talk much more about the jobs number, where we're really seeing the hiring, and where things are really still falling short. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Obviously, the headline number was stronger than expected. Uh, so that certainly is going to leave the Fed on track to deliver another pretty big hike next uh, next month. 50 or 75, I think, still up in the air. Uh, but I do think there were some hints uh, that things are moving in the right direction. That was Michael Ferroli, a chief U.S. economist for J.P. Morgan. And that talking, of course, about the jobs number. Just the highlights. Unemployment rate rising to 3.7 percent. Average hourly earnings on a yearly basis coming in 4.7 percent, down sequentially, but that's still pretty hot. Also, the overall payroll number jumping 261,000. We also had a revision up for the last two months as well. It was an overall 
pretty positive report, which made you think that we should have a sell-off in the equity market uh, and a big sell-off in the bond market. That really didn't happen. So we're still digesting that kind of news right now. The S&P is flat on the day, uh, and you're seeing a bid into the front end of the bond market with yields now down by about four basis points. Um, let's get more into these numbers then. Was there something that we missed um, for that? We're going to Michael Barrington Hibbert. He's founder and CEO of Barrington Hibbert Associates. Uh, he has deep knowledge of the job market. Um, Michael, what was your interpretation of these numbers? I wasn't surprised, Alex and Guy. Um, we all know the stats. The U.S. labor market still remains tight. You mentioned unemployment. Obviously, it's increased by 0.2%. We all know the stats in terms of two job openings for one um, person on the street. We've got to look at the macro themes. The U.S. market, standalone, is still holding stronger than expected. And I think it's really important that we have to look at industry comparisons here, Alex. And it takes you back to your, your 101 economic days at Northwestern. It boils down to supply and demand. If we look across big tech, over the course of this year alone, $770 billion have been wiped off the largest tech firms. So that had previously been the top performing um, sector during the pandemic. So between January of 2021 and the end of September, Meta, Microsoft, Google, Apple hired 150 individuals to meet demand. On top of that, in the same period, Amazon hired 700,000 staff, the majority of which were in, within the logistics industry. The point that I'm making here, Alex, we're now seeing a slowdown. Aside from um, Apple, the majority of big tech firms are now looking at hiring pauses and indeed signaling that big cuts are going to be taking place. But elsewhere in the market, that's not what's happening. Construction, pretty much full employment. Uh, they're struggling to get people. Uh, you take a look at what's happening in the energy sector. They can't find the crews to man the rigs. We talk to oil companies all the time in the Permian and elsewhere. They're really struggling. This is still a labor market that is struggling to attract people back into the labor market. You take a look at what's happening with the participation rate. And we have significant gaps in key parts of the economy. The Fed is going to have to continue to deal with this. This is not an employment report that feels like it's going to be one that's going to stop the Fed in its tracks. This is not what the Fed wanted to see today, I don't think. No, I agree. Look, Guy, absolutely spot on. We're still looking at very strong wage growth and stubbornly low supply. So, again, the Fed is very much at pains in terms of dealing with the inflation problems that we have at hand. But this is a macro problem. We look at the U.S. Um, and the drivers that happen, but look at U.S. headquartered companies. They've got global footprints. And I was listening to your contributor earlier, Jojo, I think Alex called him, and it's very much manana. So when I speak to CEOs, Guy, when I speak to the boards, they are still making hires, okay? Mm -hmm. But they're not making the cuts because they don't know where the market is going. There's a general sense that the Fed is going to continually to have to hike up inf um, inflation rates in order to cool down the market. Yeah. And that is where we're seeing organizations look at manana manana and let's potentially look at Q2 in terms of big hiring. So does that mean does that also equate then to no layoffs in that? Yeah, OK, we I know we see it in the real estate market and we see it in the in the mm. tech industry, mm. et cetera. But 
are we going to see in a world where are we seeing companies holding on to workers longer? Alex, you're absolutely spot on. And, and that's the, the conundrum that leadership have right now. Normally, we see in terms of the last quarter of the year, big financial players tend to start making um, cuts. The GE model, as it were, in terms of laying off the, lo the, the lowest 10% of the market. But we're not seeing that. You, you guys reported monster um, profits with the banks, the oil firms la um, last week. So we're starting to see a pattern where the larger organizations are holding on to talent simply because the demand is still very much there. And that's where we're starting to see this um, discombobulation of the market in terms of where are we going to start seeing these big layoffs happening? I can't see it happening this quarter nor Q1 of next year. So where does that, how far does the Fed have to go then in terms of hiking rates in order to have some sort of an impact on the labour market? That's the million dollar question. I, I've mentioned to your researchers before, um, I studied business studies at university, not an economist. The simple fact of the matter is, is that it's going to have to be a hand in hand process in terms of interest rate hikes. But where we are right now, Guy, the US labor market is still strong. But I, I think if we sit down in six months time, I think that's going to be a different proposition in terms of increased interest rates. Wage inflation is not able to keep up with regards to the inflationary rates that the Fed are going to have to kick in. So when do you think we're going to feel the full impact of, of what the Fed's already done? Look, I think it's going to be a case of Q2. Yeah. With the CEOs that I've spoken to over the last couple of weeks, Alex and Guy, that's the, the, the point that I was making in terms of manana, manana. Let's hold off on making big decisions until Q1, Q2. But we're starting to see big zombie companies who were able to have access to cheap debt for the last decade get through the pandemic. So we're going to start to see uh, a, a toppling effect where some organizations who have and are grappling with big payments in terms of debt that can't be serviced. So I think just answering back to your question, we're going to be looking more at the Q2 type of cycle. And that's when we're going to start to see that effect where the US labor market is going to start to really cool down. And the job market in itself is also going to um, start to retract. Okay, we're just having a few technical issues there at the end. Michael, thank you very much indeed for your time. We really appreciate it. Michael Barrington Hibbert, founder and CEO of uh, Barrington Hibbert Associates. Greatly appreciate it. Alex, this is the, this is the conundrum the market is, is really dealing with. The labor market continues to hold up in a way that very few expected. Yeah, and let's just go with that idea that it's going to be Q2 until we really see the effects of the hikes that have already happened. There's so, many, there's so much time and so many inflation readings between now and then. Um, that I feel like, what if you had that kind of policy mistake then? Like all of a sudden the Fed's going to be like, well, it's not coming through. We haven't seen the transmission mechanism. We're going to hike, hike, hike. And then what happens in the second quarter? I mean, I wonder if that's going to look really ugly. It, it, it definitely has the potential to. I, if you continue to see payroll numbers like we've seen today, it is going to be a struggle for the Fed to signal that it is in a position where it can back off. It is already articulating that it needs to take into account the lags in policy and the impact that those lags are going to have. But nevertheless... I, at the moment, I think it's it's in a really difficult position. The risk feels like it's to the upside. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? I don't know. I think it's going to be really ugly before it gets better. Let's talk about ugly before it gets better. Twitter, how was that transition? Uh, feels ugly right now.
the, yeah, right. uh, the advertisers are having a really tough time with it. The um, workers are, uh, considering that the layoffs were happening over the last couple hours, yeah. the emails coming in overseas. Anyway, we're going to get the update on what's happening literally on the ground uh, over at Twitter. What's next? What advertisers are doing? And if that's stickier, Ed Ludlow's joining us next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Uh, let's talk about Twitter. Let's talk about what is happening at that company right now. Layoffs have started around the world. Uh, they started in Asia overnight. They fed through into Europe. Now we're getting New York and a little later on. Uh, we're going to be finding the details out of what's happening in San Francisco. This comes at a time, of course, uh, where we are seeing advertisers taking a much more cautious stance uh, on Twitter. Advertisers want to see exactly uh, what the content moderation story is going to look like under Elon Musk. At the moment, they're starting to pull back. Musk has been tweeting about this today, talking about the revenue hit that we could see. Um, as ever, we need to talk to Ed Ludlow about this, to try and figure out what is happening here. Ed Ludlow joins us now from San Francisco. Ed, let's talk about the unemployment, the, the, the unemployment story that, that is that is kind of occurring um, at, at yeah. Twitter right now, the layoffs that are taking place. Just give us a sense of the size and the scale and who is being impacted by this. Yeah, so my understanding from sources is that actually the whole thing's been carried out. 50% of the workforce is gone. You know, you're right that it started in Asia, going around the clock, Sing Singapore, India, uh, the UK, I'm told that essentially the entirety of middle management is now gone in all regions. Every manager, every director level. Um, there are suspicions from my sources, especially some Twitter insiders that are left in the company, that the cuts will actually be deeper than 50% um, based on the kind of people that are left. And my understanding is that such is the sort of severity of the cuts. And I told you about middle management being got that everyone that now remains kind of directly reports to Elon Musk because there's no organizational structure left. And I, for example, I'm aware of several Twitter employees that survived the layoffs but plan to resign. Hmm. They don't even know who to hand their resignation letter into. How much time should we be giving this before everyone passes judgment? Like, turmoil is hard, firing people are hard, reorgs are terrible. Yeah. Well, so Twitter's point of view, Musk's Twitter's point of view, you know, his point of view as the owner is that to get Twitter to a healthy place, this had to happen. You know, it's cost cutting, right? I know that, that it's deeply sad that people are losing their jobs, right? And we shouldn't take that lightly. Um, but to Musk's mind, this is about dramatically bringing down the cost. And this is why when we were on TV earlier, guys, I brought the issue of the debt up. You know, there's a significant debt burden on this company that they'll have to service. Um, and it's not been a hugely profitable company. It's not been, uh, you know, this mega social media platform and profit beast that Meta has been uh, over the last decade. And, you know, Musk clearly sees a path to making it such um, that involves a much smaller uh, outfit, you know, a smaller list of staff. The problem with this is that advertisers are already getting nervous. And that the, the revenue hit here... How, do we do we have any idea of whether these are temp temporary permanent bans that are happening from advertisers? What are they kind of what are, what do we need to see happen in terms of this whole process unfolding? Yeah, uh, the language officially from those that have pulled out is that they're pausing, right? That they are assessing the platform and its merits, and then when they've made that deliberation, they will come back. Musk's tweet is 
reactionary, right? Let's be honest about it. He says that the top line's taking a big hit here, and his claim is that these advertisers are being influenced by lobbying, right? By by groups that are concerned around content moderation. Remember, we reported last week that the tools that this trust and safety team was using to enact policy decisions were frozen for almost all staff. And the inference we drew was actually there's not a lot of content moderation going on at all. If you're an advertiser, do you want to be placing ads on a platform where there's no control mm-hmm. on the breach of stated policies? Probably not. Well, and then, and then quickly to that point, I mean, is some of this also standard operating procedure for companies? I, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that, to be honest with you. And I, I know it's fair to ask. You take General Motors, for example. Um, let's be honest. Elon Musk is the CEO of General Motors' biggest rival. Uh, what would you do if you were General Motors and your biggest rival was at the helm of one of the places you spend a lot of money on ads? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think I'd be feeling pretty good if I was head of General Motors, just in general. Maybe not. It's it's chaos, let's be (laughs) honest. Um, Hey, Ed, really appreciate it. Wonderful reporting. Make sure to catch Ed's uh, tech show uh, later on in the afternoon. All right, coming up, midterms right around the corner. They do matter. We'll break it down. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. D-Day is Tuesday. That is November 8th. It is the midterm elections here in the United States. A ton of gubernatorial races are up for grabs. There is the control of Congress that is also up for grabs. It feels like the past of least resistance is that the House is going to go Republican, but there's lots of questions as to what happens in the Senate. Is a gridlock government good or bad for the equity market? What about the debt ceiling? What about budget deficit talks? There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that's going to have to be unpacked next week as we have a slow role uh, of who wins and who loses in, in all the states. So let's get more details with Amory Hordern. She joins us now from D.C. Amory, there's so much to get through. So what's the most important? Do our job for us. <laughs> uh, well, it's hard to really predict, right? Because there is a lot going on and it's so dependent on exactly what district or what state you're looking at. But I think, Alex, you did a good job outlining just broad strokes. It is very likely that the Republicans, really, they're poised to take control of the House. And the big question there, though, something to look out for is what's the margin? So Cook Political Report actually upgraded it recently to be more seats than they were going to expect. So they're expecting even more than a dozen seats, maybe in the 20s. So I think that's where you can see how this affects also how the Biden administration reacts, right? How big of a margin is it going to be in what Republicans would say is a referendum on the Biden administration? And then the Senate is going to be incredibly key because if you look at polls, it's very different and they're very close right now in the key swing swing states. So it can either stay Democratic control, it can go Republican, uh, but w- either way it goes, if whoever gets control, it is still going to be a very slim majority. Um, so what you can expect, though, is gridlock in Washington. What are people voting on? What are the big themes? Is it the economy? Is it what's been happening in the Supreme Court with abortion? What are the what are the things that are driving people when they get into their polling booths? That's a great question, Guy, because poll after poll, it just continues to be the economy, especially as 
we have gotten closer to the election day or D-Day, as Alex likes to say. And I think one of the more shocking polls had to be the Wall Street Journal poll this week that looked at white suburban women, which were really crucial in 2018 in flipping these House votes towards Democrats. These individuals, the margin has spiked from the Wall Street Journal previous poll that they are really leaning towards Republican candidates. And top of their list is that the cost of living is just too high. So inflation is what is really uh, troubling the Biden administration and Democratic politicians in Washington. And they've also struggled to talk about it. So this poll for me was starting to show that it does look like even though these were pockets of the electorate that were also resonating with the fact that there was this strike down of Roe v. Wade, and maybe they would have went out and voted on abortion. They are now starting to move and vote on the economy. Um, Emery, in terms of what it does to the markets, I mean, most agree that when you have gridlock in D.C., it's good for equity markets because nothing really happens. There's some things on on the margins that that may change in terms of regulation or crypto or oversight from credit card companies. But in reality, the one that everyone seems to be watching is the debt ceiling. What are you hearing around this? Oh, the perennial debt ceiling. I know, I know. That's why I said it like that. (laughs) Yes, they debate, they debate, they debate. And the last final moment, when you think you're going to hit this cliff, like 2011, um, they signed a deal. But the debt ceiling is coming up, it feels almost sooner than it should in how the normal negotiations and processes go. And that's because the Republicans are saying that they will start to cut entitlements or and use the debt ceiling almost as hostage for that. They're not just going to sign up to lift the debt ceiling if entitlements aren't cut. And actually, what you've seen is the Democrats flipping that message and saying, this is why you need to vote for us, and saying that that's fiscally irresponsible of the Republicans. And you had actually Bernie Sanders, the uh, independent liberal Democratic uh, a senator from Vermont, saying that we're going to have to use this lame duck session So almost already admitting, right, that the Republicans are going to gain control. But in that lame duck session, uh, really in December, to try to lift the debt ceiling now. Um, So that's going to start to come up very, very soon, uh, even before we head into 2023. Amory, as soon as we're done with these midterms, the focus will turn to the general election. And the big question (laughs) everybody wants to know, will Donald Trump run again? How did these elections affect that decision? Well, first, he's using these elections to really get, uh, garner support. And he was in Iowa. He's supposed to be campaigning for uh, Senator Grassley. But he also was saying that he very, very, very probably will make a bid for the White House. And what did we have today out of Axios saying that his inner circle is looking at November 14th to announce that bid? It depends what candidates, I think, really win. If you have Trump-like candidates win in this midterm election, that could certainly give him a boost that he wants and maybe needs in other parts uh, for the Republican Party to get on board with him seeking a higher office for a third time. It's also going to be very interesting because he's going to be doing other rallies in places like Florida and, of course, Governor Ron DeSantis, the big rumor, of course, is that he's also eyeing a 2024 bid. Um, So that is going to be, you know, really that once we know what the results are, and we may not know right away, so keep that in mind as well. 
we may not know the results right away. We still might we still might be hearing results Wednesday morning and afternoon. But once the midterms are over, it is presidential election 2024 season. Okay, quickly, uh, if he does run, do all the Republicans just bow down? No one runs against him. I don't. Th- I don't think that would happen, right? Because you have already a number of people putting hints out there. You have hints from the likes of his former vice president uh, Pence saying that he would like to to make a bid, and even asked directly if Trump was to run, would he? And he pretty much made the nod that he would. Um, you also mm-hmm. have the former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo kind of hinting yep. he would go for it. You have Ron DeSantis. I don't think it means that the race just clears for him. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. AMH, great coverage. Looking forward to even greater coverage next week. Thank you very much indeed. Amory Hordern joining us from D.C. I give you Boris Johnson. Doesn't always work a second time around. That's all I will say. It's going to be fascinating next week to watch what happens here. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>